Hello and welcome to In the Fig of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of P&L. Um, I guess probably the way to start this week's uh, podcast off is by uh, expressing the view that my former colleague, Galen Stops, who is my co-host on this podcast for a couple of years, is probably grateful he's not on it today because um, when we are getting to the news, there's plenty for me to rant about and there probably wasn't much for him to get a word in edgeways. So we'll kick off before coming to our guest this week with um, a look at the week that was. Um, where to start? I guess the probably the highest profile thing was the CBOE's asymmetric speed bump being refused by the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US this week. Um, yes, this is uh, an equities market issue, but I think it's something that actually does, you know, it's an issue or a, a moral argument that goes across uh, market boundaries. Now, it was subject to, you'll be surprised here, very emotive arguments on both sides. The arguments are pretty standard. The pros would say this allows deeper liquidity and tighter pricing and also makes it difficult, if not impossible, for latency arbitrages to operate in the market. Uh, those against the proposal from CBOE basically said that LPs on, I think it's pronounced Edgar, showing my equity market uh, uh, expertise here, EDGA, so we call it Edgar, um, would fade their pricing as soon as they saw hits elsewhere. Obviously, they're getting the market data first, um, generally speaking. So they'll get market data from other exchanges, and in that four milliseconds, they'll be able to fade or even cancel their price on the CBOE platform. Where to start with this? Well, <laughs> it's a market structure issue that remains a real challenge in equities, I think. And it was interesting, it came just a week or so after the Greenwich Associates research came out, in which large investors were very much against further fragmentation of equity markets. Um, they thought there should be barriers to new exchanges coming in so that they don't have to you know, send their orders to even more exchanges. That was interesting because you've got the end users of markets basically telling people that they think it's actually wrong. Now, the market structure that you picture from this SEC decision, and to a degree from the Greenwich you know, um, feedback, is one driven by regulation to the degree that it looks like an industry operating within a straitjacket, which encourages homogeneity and has Luddite tendencies. Um, why do I say that? Because that's what I think you get when regulators build markets or when regulation drives markets. And I think it's here that there is a lesson for the foreign exchange market in terms of making sure that it builds a, fair, you know, a reasonable market structure, that people do behave properly, and therefore it won't be subject to onerous regulation. Um, because when regulators build markets or drive markets, it is hard to innovate. You could argue, in fact, I will argue at this very point, that the only innovation we see in equity markets is in speed. It was in fiber optics, um, then it was co-location, now it's microwave towers, we've got people talking building um, networks of satellites. Basically, every initiative out there, it seems to me, to quote-unquote improve the equity market structure is latency-obsessed. And I don't see that that really helps anyone. Um, if you look at that market structure, I mean, I was reading through a few things about this, and I look at it and go, well, okay, if I'm an investor or a you know, market user, then I'm faced with either slippage because I can't execute my full amount, 
Um, I can do some block trades, but there's a lot of volume that isn't block trading. So I'm, I'm faced by slippage because everyone jumps on my order because it's too transparent and I haven't got my full amount done. Or I'm facing being pipped by a high-speed trader who's going to sit there, and we see this in FX all the time, who's going to sit and go, bang, order, stick it, stick it, you know, the smallest percentage point in front of that to remain top of book. So that's what faces the consumer. For the liquidity provider, well, quite frankly, they face the choice of being swept or being latency arbitrage. Where do you go with that? Okay, I'm going to be hit on one exchange and 10 others, and I have no defense mechanism against it. Don't get me started on the last look, please. Um, or I am going to be picked off repeatedly by latency arbitrages. This is what people in the past have called a model market structure. I just do not get it. Now, looking at the CBOE issue at a more detailed level, LPs will always price according to the toxicity, and I haven't even had my first drink of the day yet, um, of the flow and, or the venue. Now, there was some evidence in some of the feedback from Canada that suggested that um, such a move hadn't deepened liquidity and probably wouldn't. Um, it, it would if it created bigger blocks on which to trade. So, you know, I guess as an example, if you're an LP wanting to buy a thousand lot or willing to buy a thousand lots, currently you probably spread that over 10 venues or however many there are in US equities that you have to stream a price to. Um, and that way, a good chunk of that 1,000 you know, gets traded, you get swept, it's fine. How much of it did you want to buy? Well, that's another issue. Um, but what this argument is effectively saying that with the way that CBOE is structuring its um, proposal to be a quote-unquote fairer market, then more of that 1,000 lots would go to this one venue. Now, that's the theory of it. Um, you know, the evidence they cited from Canada, it's a pretty slim body of work, I would say, and data set. Um, the only way to do this really is in live testing, and, and that's to let it happen. You know, because if this is LPs bluffing, then it's calling the LPs bluff. You can turn around and say, okay, there you go. Here's your market structure, and now I expect to see you pricing tighter and in bigger amounts to this venue. And if they don't, then they can be called out for the BS that they're putting out there. But if they do, well, then all of a sudden, we have a better market structure, don't we? So, you know, again, that's why I think maybe it's a shame that it wasn't allowed to go ahead. Now, I will accept the proposal does benefit faster LPs. Um, but what I would say, you know, there's some slower LPs that were out there complaining about this structure, saying it, wouldn't, it would benefit faster LPs, yes it does, but if they were actually there, and this is another lesson I think for FX, if they were actually there as risk absorbers rather than just a quasi-broker looking to offload the risk at a small turn the minute they get it, sorry, the millisecond they get it, should they care? If you're a risk, risk absorber and you're willing to take this, this, this volume on and hold it for you know a reasonable period of time because you think there's value in it, well, does it matter if somebody's cutting their price in front of you, it gives you more of a chance of getting here. Um, you know, you get hit at the level you quoted. So there is maybe a lesson and perhaps a warning for FX, which is kind of heading this way with, with more people looking to become that sort of, that broker style provider rather than the um, uh, principal risk absorber. Um, 
to CBOE, where do they go from here? Well, they may come back with another proposal. I, I would say that I think that um, it's a pretty blunt sword they were using. Um, and any time you use the word asymmetric, then I think the regulators have an easy out to turn around and say, well, we don't think this is fair to enough market participants. The very word asymmetric suggests that, um, even if it's not not exactly accurate. Um, I wonder if what CBOE needs to do is to look at um, MQLs, minimum quote lifespans, so that you, know, you won't get this um, um, huge amount of quote cancels that you can get. Um, or maybe they even turn around and say to the LPs, look, if you quote and cancel too much, guess what? You're going to lose access to the speed bump and you'll be put out there on the firing line because you're not adding to market quality. We do need to accept that the quote cancels at ridiculously high levels doesn't help um, market quality, in my opinion. So I totally understand the concerns. CBOE can come back in it. I totally understand the concerns on hidden stale prices, although you've got to love the fact that a price, you know, four milliseconds creates a stale price. Um, this can, I guess, for investors, mess up their best execution. And obviously, when it comes to equities and well, most markets, best execution has become an obsession of so many people to the degree that you know, just one-tenth of a tick is seen as an absolute disaster. Um, should it be? Well, I don't think so, especially if there's slippage involved in signaling risk. But you know, that's, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Um, what I would say on that, yes, it does, mess up, it, it does mess up your best execution, but if there's an automatic price improvement, and remember the LP doesn't see the trade during the whole time, then that at least would partly address that. If the LP improves their price, and I do accept that, you know, generally speaking, if they're changing their price because they're seeing a price hit somewhere else, then fair enough, they're unlikely to improve. But at least that way, make it so that, you know, price improvements are provided as well as, you know, miss hits. Um, so the SEC decline, it was an easy approach. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, asymmetric isn't balanced. No regulator is going to go out on a limb for a small market segment. I think it's the way it is. I think, you know, we've got to have some sympathy for CBOE. It's tried to innovate, but it's so hard in this, in this environment. Um, in an innovative, open and competitive world, this initiative could have been granted and CBOE would have lived and died by the sword. If investors were unhappy, they could have walked away with their business and the exchange would suffer. And if it worked, then an innovative idea has improved the market. So where's our problem? Unfortunately, in a world dominated by MBBOs and Reg NMSs, um, such innovation and such risk-taking by a platform um, appears to be impossible. And I think that's quite a sad thing. Join us in Mexico City on Wednesday, March 25th for Profit and Loss Latin America 2020. We have a great program, including a closing keynote from Juan Garcia of Banco de Mexico on recent developments in the Mexican financial markets and the challenges to come. View the full agenda and register for the event at profit-loss.com events or email jack at profit-loss.com for sponsorship opportunities. Also last week, just a few other things, the Financial Times reported um, that the LSC Refinitiv deal could take a lot longer to get through Brussels um, because of uh, increased you know, uh, notification periods and more um, queries, should we say, 
over 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 deals from from the regulators. Now, in the bigger picture, this doesn't help LSE. But obviously, <laughs> this being an FX podcast and me being an FX dinosaur, um, all I care about is FX. Nothing else matters, of course. So therefore, this is something Refinitiv could do without for its FX business. Inevitably, when you get such a deal and when such a deal is in the offing or going through the motions, decision making slows down at the firm being bought. Um, you know, are you going to be second guessed by a new boss in six months, nine months, a year's time? Um, you know, investment plans are delayed. Um, they may be diluted. And this is probably the worst time this can happen for Affinitiv in FX because it's facing intense competition. You know, there are swaps, FX swaps initiatives out there now that are starting to get some attention and some traction. Um, there are, you know, the, the, the volume numbers on the primary venues are out underperforming, sorry, out underperforming certain other venues that have been challenging them for some time. Um, there is this move towards a disclose from the anonymous. And, you know, these are all challenges that Refinity faces. It's also trying to challenge Bloomberg in the desktop space. And that means that its ability to challenge, and you've got to be innovative, that word again, probably to challenge such a strong incumbent, um, probably needs brave decision making. Who's going to be that person in a world in which, you know, as I say, a new boss comes along in nine, in, um, nine months' time? So in the big picture, I don't think it's a, it should be a huge issue because I think as history shows us and as we all know, changing FX takes a tremendously long time, much longer than a year. We all predict change within a year and we all sit there and wonder why it takes three. Um, but you do have to wonder, even in spite of the fact that this change does take time, that whether or not um, this this potential delay opens a door to challenges to Refinitiv's position. Last week's, uh, moving on, sorry, last week's podcast with Matt Corkin chatted about LIBOR transition. Um, very timely, it turns out, because this week the Bank of England proposed two initiatives to, um, quote, unquote, help the transition. Um, I say, quote, unquote, because one of them looks like a very big stick to me in that the, the bank is saying that, you know, the haircuts it applies to LIBOR-linked or LIBOR -linked collateral will progressively be ramped up to 100%. So in other words, there will be absolutely no benefit in holding any collateral linked to LIBOR um, as we approach 2021. Um, the other initiative I thought was very interesting, actually, because it's seeking feedback, the Bank of England is seeking feedback on publishing periods on your rates. Now, this kind of recognizes the challenge of benchmarks that we face in the risk-free rate world where we're trying to, you know, value three six-month contracts on an overnight rate. So it, it recognizes the problem as the, as the Federal Reserve Bank of New York have recognized it as well. And they are both looking at the same sort of issue. Let's look at publishing periods on your rates. Um, I think the proposal is for one, three and six months, which then allows people to at least reference a term rate that's somewhat similar to their own contracts. Now I say somewhat similar because um, obviously, this will be published on a daily basis, but there'll be a lot of trades that were done maybe you know, weeks, days, months ago that will be referenced in this rate. Um, so it's not going to be inevitably matched. There will be some basis risk there somewhere, I would guess. But surely it would make it a little bit clearer. Um, and it would reduce, as the Bank of England says, um, the amount of calculations required by participants um, in, publishing, in working out these rates. Um, 
There are problems, though, still, unfortunately. Um, it does reduce calculations, but it still look back. And so effectively what it's saying is the three-month LIBOR will be, is, is set at X because we are at, um, we've been looking at the, the overnight rate for the last three months. Corporates in particular like the certainty of cash flow forecasting. They want to know what it's going to cost them to borrow for the next six months or three months, not what it would have cost them. It's, you know, let's have a look at what you would have. Let's have a look at what it would have cost you. And now we're going to say it's going to cost you that again. It may be the best solution to a bad problem. I don't know. Um, but certainly, we, you know, that is a problem that's still going to be an issue. And I think there's also the challenge of um, what do we do about month ends? If we have a repo blowout the way we had in September, um, how much of an influence is that going to have on the one, three and six month rates? So I think you know, there needs to be consensus. The Bank of England understands this and has stated that. Without consensus, it will not go ahead. Um, I think it's a sensible solution, but I think it, so it needs consensus and probably needs a little bit more nuance in, along the line before it goes anywhere. Uh, finally, in a busy news week, um, quite a lot of buzz over something we reported last week. Um, sorry, two weeks ago now, when you're listening to this podcast, and there's um, Ion buying Broadway, which um, recently bought Barracuda, Ion recently bought Market Factory. Obviously, this improves its position in FX. Now, it's interesting that it was talking about a recapitalization of Broadway. So clearly, Broadway needed the cash to fulfill its ambitions. This it now has. Um, what I found interesting were banks expressing their concern to me and to other media outlets um, because you know they've been trying to move away from Ion, which was seen as having a very dominant position, and now they're moving to a situation where they're going, ah, well, the player we went to was Broadway, which is now owned by Ion. Um, will there be any competition problems with this? Probably not, because it's quite a niche market. Um, what I would say is that, you know, I mean, people tell me Ion, they don't like Ion because they lock people into longer contracts. Well, that's their right. Um, as it is the bank's right to refuse that deal. You know, if, you, if, if you're not going to get a sale over the line because it's going to be seven-year or 10-year lock-in, well, probably you try and get a deal over the line for three years. And there is a natural period in which you, know, you, need, to get, you need things to work. Um, this also, I guess, opens the door to a competitor. Um, do we look at someone like a Transfic who you know, gets the opportunity now to have a real go in a market that is certainly open to a competitor. You know, most markets like competition. They like a redundancy option. This opens up the door to a firm like that. You know, we're, told trans uh, we're told that fintech is transforming. Well, maybe this is an opportunity to actually prove it um, to cynics like me who sometimes think they get a little bit um, carried away with their hype. Um, I also think one final thought on this, this is what happens when you buy and don't build. You lose control. In favor. You're looking at short-term cost cutting. Um, that's great. Um, but you know, this also gives control of your technology to a third party. And you know, the FX market's history is riddled with firms that did this. It looked good and then went wrong. And I guess my final thought is um, we started this segment of the podcast with fragmentation. Um, there's a little bit of irony and I have to smile to myself a little bit that banks are complaining about fragmentation when they're the service providers, but when they're the customer, they like it quite a lot. So there you go. There's a cynicism out of the way for, for one week. Um, we'll be back in a second with this week's guest. Is your company interested in advertising in this spot? 
or in sponsoring an In the Thick of It podcast and having a guest speaker appear with Colin. Email info at profit-loss.com and one of our team will contact you to discuss ideas. So navigating these market structure changes we've been discussing in the podcast so far, um, and not without complexity, um, we, it's not just about the trading, it's about compliance, risk, um, reporting, sales efforts. Um, so I thought it'd be good to talk to someone, an expert in this field around how do we deal with this sort of complexity and this sort of challenge at the most, what could be the most basic level, which is the desktop, which after all is the tool that most markets market participants will use more than any other. Um, so joining me is um, James Wooster, uh, COO of Glue42, a vendor of software platforms, um, and more generally looking at digital transformation of workflow. Uh, James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kai. In terms of what I'd like to sort of, you know, get clear for our listeners, let's kick off with yeah, what are the challenges involved? I've mentioned a lot of functions there, compliance, sales, trading, um, you know, risk. What are, the, what are the challenges involved in actually, in actually bringing this stuff together? Yeah, so in our experience, uh, a desktop in a financial services organization, any, anywhere in FS, it is reasonably complex. It, it contains lots of different applications. In a trading environment, it's quite often a great deal worse. The, the pressures on the end users of traders themselves are, are often quite great. They need to navigate within and between lots of different applications. And, and typically, these applications have come from lots of different places, lots of different software vendors, perhaps, but also internal applications as well. And so, you know, as, as an outsider, if you, if you stood 30 paces away from a, a trader, a trader's desk and looked at the multitude of screens and often machines and apps, it looks a bit of a nightmare. Uh, and you yeah. question how on earth anyone could sensibly navigate that lot without getting completely lost and confused. So I, I think, you know, FX and fixed income in general is, is one of the, the most challenging areas of, of the financial desktop to, to help simplify a journey and, and to properly support the end user. Mm. I mean, it hasn't been helped, I guess, because obviously if you look at the structure of most financial institutions, until a few years ago, there was an FX business separate to a fixed income business, separate to a commodities business, separate to, a, to an equities business. And at least, I suppose, in the FIC world, they've managed to bring those together. But yeah, to your point, that still leaves a lot of legacy technology. And so how do we deal with the complexities then of trying to get legacy and new applications onto one desktop, you know, speaking to each other more efficiently? Yeah. So I think it's, it's worthwhile perhaps just sort of stepping back from the complexity and just asking the bigger question, like what is it that the, the, the trader, the end user of any kind is trying to achieve? Because actually – Whilst many of our, our end users are, are technical or at least have a technical background, they are not technicians, they're not IT experts um, necessarily. And so what, um, what's important is to understand the journey uh, from you know, the first application to the last in a particular transaction. Uh, and these, these journeys need to be streamlined. They, they need to appear as if 
all, all of the data access, all of the transactional capabilities were coming from a single place, a single application. So what, what we're trying to do, and, and this is you know, quite a, a grand vision, I guess, is, is to help blur the boundaries between applications. I mean, in some senses, an application it is only of interest or relevance to the vendor that wrote it or the developer that you know, was part of that team. An application to an end user, well, it's, it's perhaps useful in the sense you can give it a name and talk about you know, whether it's good or bad or not. But actually, yeah. we think what um, traders need in particular is a sort of a blend of applications, something that we would call a workspace typically, which contains exactly the right data, exactly the right transactional capabilities, which are displayed at exactly the right time. And in that journey, um, you don't want end users copying and pasting data between different systems. I mean, just because a symbol in one app is different to another, that, that should be an irrelevant. The, the fact that a client ID might be something in one application and, again, different in another should be dealt with by the platform, by the desktop, and not really by the end user. Um, and so the complexity from our perspective comes from the fact that, well, first of all, there are often lots of applications, um, but it's not all about the, you know, the latest and greatest apps. I mean, in, in some, some desktop environments, single dealer platforms, the, the application technology choice is web, but elsewhere it's not. Uh, and if you are trying to synchronize one of the older uh, market data or market research platforms with some brand new shiny piece of technology, there are some technical issues there in terms of getting those two things to talk to each other. Hmm. So is this about recoding more than anything else? You know, in terms of you know the data's coming in, but it's just coming in on so many different from so many different sources and so many different languages. Is it is is the key issue here? Say, so forgive my ignorance on this, and it, and believe me, regular listeners will know I have. There's a lot of ignorance in me. Um, but is this really about? Um, I guess, recoding the, the information coming in to display? Um, it, it, it is. But let, let, let me tell you how we would look at the problem at a, at a sort of relatively high level. So if, yeah. if you have a trader who is, is trying to do their job across multiple systems, then yeah. there is a disconnect quite often between the data and the symbology between those systems. But there's also potentially gaps or even overlaps between the functionality offered by those systems. And then finally, the, the, the various user interfaces will, will quite often compete for real estate and, and compete for the user's attention. So the way we see this then it is that um, it's not just a data mapping issue. It, it, is a, it is a need to integrate both the user interfaces of these applications and the business logic and the data. And if you only do one or two of those, then you haven't really solved the problem. And so looking sort of more historically at the, the integration marketplace, um, the, the big integration players from decades ago, they've always focused at the data mapping. And, and that is still today and will always be a, a really critical component um, in terms of a digital transformation project. But if you look around any, any major trading institution, bank or whatever, they've all got that technology, but they yeah. still have a problem on the desktop. 
and, and so you need to you need to ask the question is is fixing the data integration sufficient and we don't believe it is i think that going forward the best kind of desktop environments are where you consider the end user the trader the portfolio manager uh, the, the wealth manager whatever as being a first-class citizen and that you need to design a desktop with them in mind rather than the technology constraints that you've happened to inherit over decades worth of product and software acquisition and build. So it strikes me you're talking there about capturing the behavioral journey of a user yeah. rather than yeah. maybe the functionality of it. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. So, so look, if, if, you, if you arrive at some uh, standard finance trading desktop and, and you look at all of the applications and, and then you, you start to feel even sympathy for the end users, they're trying to re-key data between these systems and you know, find the right application is quite often an issue. Then the question is, how, how do you go about optimizing that that workflow through those systems. And so, you know, one of the traditional methods is that you sit over the shoulder of the trader and watch what they do, which is never a comfortable place to be, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> what, what, you what you'd rather do is somehow use the integration platform itself before the integration solution has been created, just to monitor, um, you know, clearly with, with the trader's um, knowledge ahead of time, which yeah. applications are being used, how long they're being used for, uh, and also to look at sort of interesting patterns of usage where perhaps uh, a user is going backwards and forwards between the same set of applications many, many times. And if you could gather that kind of uh, sort of breadcrumb trail of usage, then what you can then do is through sort of various analytics tools is to be able to decide what the optimal flow could be as opposed to mm. what the end user is having to effectively do themselves because the systems don't talk to each other and that that gives you really really valuable insight and let, let me just give you a quick um, highlight so if if in a particular organization you know that trader fred is is the best because fred's outcomes are better than anyone else's then the question is what is it that fred is doing is it because Fred has uh, a great territory, a great set of clients, uh, or Fred is a fantastic relationship builder, or Fred has been there for 50 years and knows every, everything that you know, everyone else is trying to learn? You, you simply yeah. don't know. Um, but if you were able to understand Fred's usage of the IT systems and which systems are used and not used, how long they're used for, etc., and then you compared Fred with, Harry, let's say, um, what you could start to do is is understand the differences in behavior, the difference in systems, the difference in flow. And if you understand the difference, then you can start to train Harry to be like Fred or indeed the rest of the team to be like Fred. And so therefore, you know, little, little old IT integration platform that sits behind the scenes is now able to deliver real valuable insight in, in a way that I don't think I've actually seen before. So this is not no. so much data mining, it, it's sort of process mining, I guess, or, or as we call it, 
um, and this sounds much too grand, I think, but user behavior analytics. That's, that's what we call this. We, we are not above a grand statement on this podcast, mate. Let me, let me tell you that for a start. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I find I'm, that's, that's quite interesting. So, um, I mean, obviously, I guess the other thing you could look at and say is, well, actually, Harry, to use your example, is actually probably better tasked by doing a certain function. Because, you know, I mean, Fred may be the best at everything, but I think you know, my experience of trading rooms is you have different skill sets, different roles. So I guess what you're saying is the technology can also help identify, you know, the most efficient use of the human resources that the firm has available to them. Is that is that fair? Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely spot on. But in addition to that, there are some other benefits as well. So, for example, if you have that visibility about usage and behavior, then you can start to use that as input to um, compliance systems. So, for example, if a particular process step is consistently being forgotten, um, then you could spot that and then you could help uh, the, the traders, you know, um, get get back up to speed in terms of what the recommended process is, and encourage them to do that. And ultimately, um, and this is not something that we see a need for now, but yeah, maybe it's it's out there in the future. It is that if all of your applications are talking to each other through this integration platform, and you know what the correct process or workflow should be, then actually there's nothing stopping you from either suggesting a path through these systems or indeed forcing a path through these systems and and mm. you know clearly that's that's a much bigger question and conversation to be had but the technology is there today and like i mean i guess yeah, to your point around forcing aspects i mean in some ways it can be i mean i, th I think the acceptable phrase is pushing notifications <laughs> Rather than pulling them, yeah. but for instance, I guess so. If if a if a if a if a member of staff had a particular task that they um, had to execute at the same time every day, are we talking a situation whereby you know the desktop can actually push the workflow to the front, or you know, or just bring it from the background, or is that are we uh, sort of getting into Star Trek territory? No, no, that's um, that, that's actually what we implement day in, day out, funnily enough. So, okay. um, so at the beginning, I said, let's blur the boundaries between the applications. That, that would be a great thing to achieve. And, and I also mentioned this concept of a workspace, which contains exactly the applications that you need for a particular uh, either end user or desktop or perhaps a, a specific kind of process. So a great way of looking at this is that um, if, for example, uh, a notification occurred or an inbound call occurred, but some kind of out-of-band activity, then what we can very easily do as, a, as an integration platform is use that notification as a trigger to launch uh, an entirely new and an, an additional workspace. And that workspace would instantly um, uh, correlate and, and show data that's relevant to that notification. So, so be that, you know, a, a symbol or a client ID or portfolio ID or whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter. The workspace can orient itself around the data associated with a trigger. And if you look at the, the benefit of that um, and compare that with what would take place at the moment, if a notification, a high priority notification is received, then all hell breaks loose on the desktop and you, know, you have to 
gather the, the right kind of data, you have to gather the right applications, and that takes time. So wouldn't it be better if your desktop was smart enough to be able to respond to those notifications and then based upon that notification, figure out what workspace and hence workflows are relevant for the end user. And, and that, that's not rocket science. That's not out there in the future. That's, that's live and up and running today. Hmm. I have to confess I've never seen an episode of Star Trek, so it was a bad example for me to use anyway. Um, how, um, if, just uh, to satisfy my curiosity, I suppose, then how easy is it to push this into more of a mobile environment? I mean, maybe there's two, two aspects of this. Yeah, what do you do when you're looking at sort of remote third-party desktops when you're delivering to those? Yeah. Um, and secondly, what happens, you know, how possible is this in the mobile world? We do see you know, more and more people mobile working. In markets, mobile trading is there. I wouldn't say it's dominant by any means. But, I mean, can this sort of, um, these applications and, and this concept be transferred into those into those areas? Yeah, I, that, that's, um, that's a really interesting area and, and a very topical one right now, actually. Um, so without going off the, uh, the technical deep end, um, th- there is a, 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 a huge effort going on at the moment, sponsored and bankrolled by the likes of Google, Microsoft, and to a lesser extent, Apple, but all three are involved in this, this new idea about what they call a progressive web app. And we, we, we don't need to drill down too far. We just need to understand that if someone, uh, a software vendor, an individual developer, was to write a progressive web app, a PWA, then they write it once and very easily uh, with no changes to the app. It can be deployed within both a standard desktop web browser um, but also a mobile device. And then cunningly, um, you can actually run it outside of a browser on a desktop um, such that it looks like a native app. And it's not just looking like a native app, it actually feels like one as well. Uh, and there are things that um, these progressive web apps do behind the scenes to improve performance and caching and, and also the ability to work offline, uh, for example, when you've got a dodgy network connection. So mm-hmm. these, these PWA things have the ability to work in, in any device um, looking as if they are local applications with the same performance that you would expect. But from a software vendor, they're, they're awesome because you write it once and you, then you can deploy it many. And so I think if you look at a single dealer platform, at the moment, to get um, an FDP working on a sort of remote, um, a remote desktop, at the moment, when those web applications talk to each other, they have to do that via a piece of software that you need to install locally on that, on that workstation. And that's not great. It's not great because ITSEC need to be assured that any software that is being deployed is safe and secure and resilient and so on. And of course, every time that software gets upgraded or changed or fixed, ITSEC have to get involved again and they have to go through a whole load of regression testing. Now, PWA, Progressive Web App, is a means by which you can actually uh, forego the need to deploy any software on that remote machine. If you like, the the integration platform is itself 
uh, a progressive web app and does not need to be installed. It just runs effectively courtesy of um, of the sort of browser environment, whether you can see the browser or not. What this means mm. ultimately is you can get much, much easier web-to-web integration at, at a significantly lower cost uh, f- from an operational perspective, that is, because you now don't need to deploy any local software. Um, and I think this is going to be one of the the major changes over the next few years as software vendors release more and more progressive web applications and the interop vendors embrace that approach too. Hmm. So I'm, how long is a piece of string time? There's always one of these in every, in every question, of course. Um, but I mean, how long does this sort of transformation take? For instance, if I'm sitting in, you know, let's just say a bank, it could be any, you know, it could be a, an asset manager, but and, I, and I'm looking to sort of transform in a fashion we've just discussed. I mean, obviously, you've got to, you're talking about behold, uh, building behavioral analysis of, of workflows. Mm-hmm. That's going to take time. What sort of, I mean, you know, is this something that can happen reasonably quickly or, you know, do prospective clients, I guess, of you and and um, other deployers need to have a bit of patience? Um, uh, I mean, it, it is a bit like a piece of string, but let, let, let me let me give you an example. So just recently, we, we had a, uh, a, a prospect come to us and, and what they wanted to see was um, a, a sort of consolidation of all of their requirements in one single demonstration. So, so they wanted to see... Um, uh, Fidesa um, from Ion um, yep. uh, using the sort of tracker capability. So where, where you click on a symbol in Fidesa, all, all of the other Fidesa windows orient or themselves to the same symbol. But in addition to that, they also wanted Bloomberg to receive the same uh, data context as well and an in-house web application. Um, so we, we, we have out-of-the-box connectivity with Bloomberg, Icon, uh, Fidesa, Outlook, Excel, Salesforce, we, we have pre-built connectors. And even where we don't, building one is pretty trivial anyway. So in this particular situation, this consolidated proof of concept had about five applications in, as I said, including Bloomberg, Fidesa, and in-house bespoke apps. And we managed to integrate that within probably a day and a half or so. Um, and it would have been a lot quicker if, if we'd had a clear specification of what we needed to do. Uh, that problem will continue forevermore, by the way. Um, so if, you, if you've got a connector to these applications and you've got an integration platform that actually doesn't care about the technology stacks or the actual vagaries of the applications, you can do this in as few as, as hours through to days. Now, I'm glossing over the critical issue here, sadly, Um which is that even with the world's best integration platform, you can still implement a complete uh, nightmare of a solution because you need to understand the user journey. You've got to understand what the end user is doing. And you can put applications together in completely the wrong order, sharing the wrong data, and you've achieved absolutely nothing. And so one of the things that we, we enjoy seeing the jaws drop at is when we talk about the fact that applications are now talking to each other for the very first time, that that user behavior analytics, that, that ability to monitor application usage comes for free. 
in, if the applications are talking to each other and exchanging data, then immediately and with no extra effort, we can start to capture the data about their usage. So even if your first implementation was your best guess as to what the traders required, instantly uh, upon go live on day one, you start to capture data that allows you to subsequently optimize what you did in the first place and, and improve it over time. And so therefore, you, you can not only implement quickly, um, but you can also refine and optimize quickly as well. So, you know, things are getting easier. Integration platforms are becoming much, much more capable um, than the, perhaps they were even a year or two years ago. So I think the prospects look good. Excellent. Well, I mean, you know, screen real estate is and has been one of the bigger issues. As you say, you walk into places. And there was a time, I think, when people sitting on the trading floor wanted to have eight screens because it made them look important. Um, the visits yeah. to the chiropractor and other medical professionals just <laughs> disabused them of that notion. Um, James, that's fascinating. Thank you very much to our listeners. Um, thanks very much for tuning in. Um, have a very good week. We'll be back next week. Have a good one.